Hi, my name is Ben Ratzkoff. And the last thing I prayed for is that my boyfriend finds an apartment by March 1st. Hi there, we're JC and Jess, and this is Pray For Us, a podcast about practicing an ancient religion in the modern day. We're talking about how we observe Judaism and other religions when it comes to holidays, relationships, food, and everything in between. Today, we're talking to Ben Ratzkoff. Ben is a professor of anti-Semitism at Occidental, who is getting his PhD at UCLA. He also runs a Jewish cultural magazine called Protocols. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. I will say, Jess, that was so quick, like... Are you running a marathon? Will you edit that and redo it later? <laughs> Probably. Um, I might re-record. I'm sweat. I like got like heated. Doing I usually that. do the intro and like I guess that's why. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Really. So, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and like what your Jewish upbringing was like? Yeah, I so I grew up in Buffalo Grove, which is a suburb north of Chicago. Very kind of like, I don't know if you've ever heard of sort of the North Shore. It's kind of like a high density Jews. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so like, you know, surrounded by Jews growing up. Um, Actually, like my, where I grew up, it was, there was such a high like Jewish population at the public school where I went to high school offered Hebrew as a foreign language. Wow. What high school did you speak Hebrew? Uh, Stevenson High School. And yes, I do. I grew up, yeah. And I had kind of a sort of like a typical kind of like American reform upbringing. We definitely like belong to a, my family belonged to a reform temple. um, But at the same time, we also were in ways more... I guess, traditional than a lot of my peers, or I guess on the more leaning on the more traditional side in the sense that like we had Shabbos dinner every week. And I don't think like most of my peers were not doing that, um, for example. So, and yeah, like it was sort of like your typical kind of like natural American Jewish upbringing in the sense that my parents weren't like ideologically committed to like the reform movement or anything. It was just kind of what was and like sort of the way Mm -hmm. that they practiced. Yeah, that was like sort of my kind of typical upbringing. I went through sort of Hebrew school and I guess Sunday school, other like sort of that kind Mm -hmm. of typical Jewish education. And then my, I ended up like, my life ended up taking a bit of a turn like later in life and because late in high school, but especially through my undergrad, I kind of became, I don't know, like somewhat disillusioned with kind of my Jewish upbringing and also interested in exploring kind of other paths. And it was kind of a collision of a lot of different things that were happening in my life at the time that led to it. But I became really interested in what is called orthodoxy. And I kind of went through, we can talk about that more if you want, but I sort of went through a whole phase of Was there like a specific event that kind of provoked you to go that direction or just a lot of no, I mean, it was such a long process. Mm-hmm. Like there was no overnight switch. It was such a kind of long process. And there was so much, le- honestly, there was so much learning involved because the truth is, is that there's just, you know, so much text and history and culture that unfortunately, and I just speak from my own experience, like was just not a part of my upbringing. Like, you know, there were, it was basically, you know, we plant trees on two bishvats and, you know, we watch Prince of Egypt and, <laughs> whatever. But like the idea that, right. I mean, like the idea that there are libraries and libraries filled with 
books and texts written by Jews over the past 2000 years was just kind of like so inaccessible and foreign to me. And I kind of, I think that I had some, like, I'm a very, obviously I'm in academia, so I'm a very kind of studious bookish person. And so there was a little bit of like resentment of like, well, why is that? Why, when I learned all about that, or when I discovered it, it was like, why did I not know about this? Why do I not know who these people are? Beyond kind of like the Holocaust and Israel, the rest of like the last 2000 years of Jewish life are just really not a part of most American Jews like education. And so, yeah, there was some like resentment, I think, and just, but mostly wanting to really just access it. And the fact was, is that, you know, the place that you can access Jewish texts, let's say written in the 13th century is probably in a yeshiva, right? Yeah. Like, or, or, in, yeah. right. So it just kind of was like this, it kind of, things were sort of all colliding in a way. And, and at the same time, when I was an undergrad, I just kind of coincidentally became very good friends with a group of kids at Northwestern who were, I went to Northwestern University, um, who were, who were themselves modern Orthodox and they had gone to like, like Jewish high school, Jewish day school growing up. And I kind of just like was friends with them. And so I started like going, they were like, oh, you know, we're going to Shabbat dinner tonight. Do you want to come with? And it, and they were going to like the Orthodox, like they weren't going to sort of just the like, I don't know, like regular Hillel, whatever mm -hmm. Shabbat. And so I was like, sure, you know, and then I just like, was like, things were happening. I was just like, what's going on there? What's that? And like, just getting interested. <laughs> and yeah, it just, I got more and more interested. And I found, to be honest, I found a lot of it so compelling. And I ended up, you know, thinking about my own upbringing and the ways in which I, I felt that it was alienated from, from a lot of things that Jews had been doing for hundreds of years. Yeah. I ended up like after college taking a deep dive really. And like, I ended up going to a yeshiva in Israel actually, and spending a couple of years really there. And I sort of then went through a phase where I was inwardly and outwardly kind of really, um, I was Orthodox. I was an Orthodox Jew. Then, you know, there was just, and you know, there were, I will say also, and like, there was kind of, there was, there were political elements involved. I don't know how much of this you want. No, there, I there want it all. Let's go. Yeah, like, let's get into it. There were political elements involved in the sense that I, through my undergrad, was becoming more like critical, suspicious, and also resentful of like just the, the kind of like Israel education that I had had. Mm -hmm. And as like I the learned. Like pro-Israel education? Sure. But I mean, I just mean in general, like what I was taught and, and okay. given, right, like was basically this, you know, automatic, it was just this totally unthinking, we have Israel bonds, we donate to the JD, JNF, like it was just like this mm -hmm. total, like, you know, automatic thing. And, you know, then when you just start thinking, when I, at least when I started thinking about things, started reading things, started asking questions, like it kind of slowly began to crumble for me, like this whole system and I, and culture. And I became very critical and I was, and I was searching, I think for a way to still really be deeply, deeply engaged with like Jewish life and Jewish culture, but that wasn't this kind of militarized nationalism. Um, mm -hmm. and I kind of found that in orthodoxy because that, because they were just learning the Talmud and, you know, like celebrating these holidays that I had never heard of like Shavuot or like whatever, you know, and like, and it was just, you know, it's certainly, I mean, I'm simplifying things. I'm not saying that Orthodox people don't have a relationship with Israel, but there was just so much more other than that. Whereas like, if in my synagogue growing up, if you were 
still really into Jewish stuff, like after your bar mitzvah, that basically meant you were getting involved in like probably like some kind of Israel advocacy oh, or something. Oh, absolutely. Right. Where I grew up right. Yeah. So, right. So that was like connected too, and like, and, and yeah. And so I went and I, and I had this sort of like experience and I really immersed myself and it had a big effect on me, obviously. And then, you know, to make a long story short, there were just like a lot of things that led me ultimately to take a few steps away from that. And, you know, those were related to really just, you know, feeling like I didn't like almost the same way I felt before. Like these people also don't necessarily get me or Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like fully, I can't be my full self here. Um, Certainly in terms of like my sexuality, I like just didn't, like I couldn't, as a gay person, I just like couldn't see a future for myself in that world. And, and it was never that I felt like, it wasn't like I was being like oppressed as a gay person, but I just like, if I thought about the future, it was just like, that's illegible. Like that doesn't exist here, you know? Yeah. in terms of partnership or whatever. So, you know, it was easy for a couple years to just kind of suspend that thought while I absorbed all of this interesting stuff. But then at a certain point, you're like lonely and you want more people around you and you want to have a relationship. And, and you know, you just kind of have to face these un- unfortunate kind of like red lines. And mm-hmm. now I'm just kind of like this weird hybrid of a person that... um is kind of doing my own thing because I still, you know, I, it wasn't like I didn't just go back. Like I still sort of feel in ways critical and alienated from like the Judaism that I grew up with, especially because I've had this other experience that I loved in so many ways. And yet I'm not fully a part of like Orthodox communities in any way. So I'm sort of just like, I don't know, doing my own thing and figuring it out day by day. Uh, Upon going to Israel to study, was that your first time being there or had you been there like previously? No. So my first time was actually in high school. I, it was like a summer when I was in high school where I like just, I didn't have anything to do over the summer and I don't know, I didn't want to work or something. So my mom was like, I, I yeah, like now I'm thinking like how like disgusting that sounds like, so get a job. Like, <laughs> but, um, like, but at the time, like, you know, whatever. So I'm thinking and, and my mom was like, do you want to go to Israel? Like, that was like the, literally how she said it in the sense that my family was not, you know, we were like pro-Israel in name, you know, but like my, I did not come from like mm-hmm. a family that was like really, really engaged with mm-hmm. like Israeli politics and like, and my parents had never been to Israel. So it was like, it was just not a part really of our life, like other than just these really sort of nominal moments where we maybe like planted a tree in Israel or something. But it was just like a thing that young American Jews like did was like go on these summer trips to Israel. So she was just kind of like, I want to do that. Like, and <laughs> I was like, I guess, like, I guess it kind of makes sense. Like I am like sort of into Judaism and whatever. <laughs> and so, um, I did this trip, like this summer trip that was like a month. And well, do you know the program? Yeah, it was through BBYO, um, okay. Pass- Passport to the World, um, Ooh. which which is like the concept of these trips, which are really, which is really interesting is like they, you do like a week somewhere, not Israel. And then you do like three weeks in Israel. And you know, the typical one, which I like was so not enthused about was like, you know, going to like Poland or like Czechoslovakia and like, you know, doing that whole shtick and then just like being depressed for a full week and then going going to Israel. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like you like come out of the ashes. Yeah, exactly. Like Israel. (laughs) Right. Um, but 
I chose like this really other one that I thought was like for the cool kids, which was to Spain. I knew you were going to say Spain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is for the cool kids. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So like it was to Spain for a week, then Israel for three weeks. And it was just, it was an incredible trip for me, like in so many ways. I mean, like it's already started in Spain where I was like, you know, those moments where you like realize how little you know. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like where it's like, Every where day. you're, right. <laughs> Where you're just like, <laughs> you know, I had grew up in a typical American Jewish family. Of course, I knew that Sephardic Jews existed, you know, meaning I grew up in like this typical Ashkenazi community or definitely like, and, and yeah, I like knew, like, I remember my dad telling me like about his friend's dad growing up who used to like read a Ladino newspaper. So like, I knew that, like, I knew that Sephardic Jews existed, but I just was so ignorant of like Sephardic history and like just what that even meant, you know, and like we were in Spain and like, I just like every second, I'm just like, what? Like, what? <laughs> you know, like, we're just like going to all of these like old ass synagogues and like, and then like, we're going to like, we went to like Maimonides birthplace and I've like literally never heard of who Maimonides was. I'm just like, who is this person who is like in the canon of Western philosophy? Like, I'm just like, who is that? Like, I just, and then, and that's when I started having this feeling of like, why don't I know this? Like, why was I never like mm -hmm. taught this, you know? And then when we went to Israel, it was like, just honestly, an incredibly eye-opening experience for me. Not so much, like, not so much in terms of like the politics of it, but like just the fact of seeing so many different kinds of like Jewish life that yeah. was so different than like my suburban white American like community, you know? Like it was just like, there's like these, Jews from Arab countries doing one thing and there's like people with tattoos on the beach in Tel Aviv and there's like Hasidic people in the middle of these like stone courtyards in Jerusalem like it was just like all like I was just like what is happening like again it was like I have no idea who I am like I, I, I have no idea who my what my culture like like what is all this and that was the beginning of me just like becoming super interested in I guess that, like, in sort of like the divert, like me realizing yeah, that, that what sense. I, what I grew up with was not normal. It was like a path in Jewish history. Like it was not mm -hmm. the norm. It was just like, w right. And that was like really an important moment for me. So yeah. So that sort of like opened me up to like that whole world. And, and it kind of then built from there, you know, when I went to college then and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I actually, I studied, I've lived in Spain two separate times, but the second time was for like seven months and I stayed with a host host mom. And I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I think it was like probably around Easter. And she was like asking me what I wanted for Easter dinner or something like that. And I was like, oh no, like I, I was like, no, no, no. Like I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. And I didn't know if she knew the word Jewish. And she was like, hold on, hold on. And she like ran to her room and like was scurrying around her things for like 20 minutes. And finally she pulls out a yarmulke and she was like, patting her head and then she was like yo tambien yo tambien she was like she oh, was fucking jewish oh my the whole time and she didn't know that i was jewish and i didn't know that she was jewish and we were just like oh my god that is so incredible and then she told me about all the jewish museums around spain and i like went to all of them and i had the exact same experience that you had because i was like of course i knew that spain had to have some jews but i had absolutely no idea about like any of the Sephardic history or like how the Spanish Inquisition, like, you know, affected all the Jews and all that stuff. And I was like, holy fuck, like, I can't believe I was so like oblivious to that for so long. Right. 
Right. It's fascinating. That's an awesome story. I know. It, we, I like cried. It was so, it was just, it was great. You guys I mean, could have been celebrating Shabbat together about the whole time. time. I know. And you know, I'm sure that's what you want us to be doing while you were abroad. <laughs> yeah. It just like makes you think of like how many, like, especially in Spain, like just like there were moments where you like look around, you're just like, are there like Jews here? Or, like, or not Jews, but like even just like people who like descend from Jews, like, and just, you, they don't even know it. It's like, it's mm-hmm. this like kind of haunting. It's, it's fascinating. Exactly. It's fascinating to me that instead of feeling like there's so much I don't know about Judaism, I'm so overwhelmed. How could I possibly understand all of it? Which is how I feel. You were like, I want to know more and I'm going to like make it my life's work to understand my culture and my history and like help explain it to other people. I think that's very commendable. I feel like that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> no, 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 totally. I mean, I, I think it's, 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 thank you for saying it's commendable. Um, you know, it, cause some, it doesn't always feel, sometimes it feels like, you know, why can't I just live my life and forget about these questions (laughs) but but no it's true like I mean it definitely um you know yeah I definitely kind of there was a point I don't like remember when it was exactly of course but like there was some point where like I was just like I especially when I made the decision to go to yeshiva like it was sort of like this like I have to do this like I just like there's Mm -hmm. no other way like I just like have to go to this space and to access this like knowledge and this that that is that is mine and like I just don't can't access it here and and yeah so I so I think yeah definitely like one thing has led to another in that in that regard you're right when you said that you were like strayed from what you grew up with I thought you're gonna say that you and you started exploring other things I thought you're gonna be like so I decided to become Buddhist or like I was like oh my god right you really threw me for a loop there that's the typical I know that's the typical, like, you know, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Like, you know, (laughs) what do you think of that? I mean, it's, I mean, it's just, it's people, it's their own insecurities. You know, I mean, like, first of all, it's a couple of things. Number one, they have this idea of like, what is, what does this word religion mean? And it's like, for them, it clearly means something like primitive and conservative and like, you know, pre-modern and uncool. Right. Um, And I think there's just like a lot of like their own insecurity, you know, with that, with wanting to, with wanting that, like they have a desire for some of those things that exist in religion, but they're like, it's like not cool. It's like not modern. It's like not progressive, right. All of these things. And so like to make it into, I think more of a palatable kind of thing. I mean, especially because now we have like, you know, we have lots of consumer culture around spirituality, whether it's like, astrology i mean even like you like little like buddha you know like trinkets like people like so many random like white non-buddhist people like have these like oh, yeah. all of these like little trinkets around their house now right <laughs> for, for the vibes it's like all about just like the it's like that's what spirituality is like just like a no vibe, religion you just know? Vibes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah i mean i'm in la so i'm like it's like that is all about here oh yeah you know? i think like, it's very cool to be anti-organized religion or like shit on organized religion and obviously like, i've done that too i can't lie but i wonder like is the problem really with organized religion or is it with the people who are like the leaders or who are like the face of organized religion yeah i mean so to begin with like i think already it you know this question of like organized religion like as a category 
if I could get a little, if I could get a little heady for a moment, um, please do. Um, you know, is, is really interesting because this like idea, you know, this idea of like this category organized religion where we could like put into this box, all of these things like Christianity and Islam and Judaism and whatever it may be, which all have such different theologies, different histories, you know, and certainly they're interacting with each other as well. But this idea that it's like, it's like what flavor? It's like, you know, you go into the organized religion aisle and like you see, oh, there's Christianity, there's Judaism, there, right? They're all just kind of like these little equal things. When that's like not really the case of what happened, let's say historically. I mean, if we just think of even on a very general simplistic sense of like how, you know, Christianity came out of this kind of internal polemic, internal argument in in among Jewish communities in what, you know, what today is the state of Israel or Palestine. And so like they, and then, and then, you know, Islam drawing on its own traditions, et cetera. The point that I'm making is that when we say like organized religion, we're already arriving to that like conversation with so many um, assumptions about what religion is, about what, what is that thing that unifies Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? Where does that come from? I mean, one of the one of the interesting things that a lot of sort of scholars of, of religious studies have written about, and especially in the past like 20 years or so, is how this idea of like religion itself um, comes out of a very specific moment of basically the Enlightenment, right? And like Europeans sort of liberating themselves from the church, right? And becoming these like modern, rational, scientific people, right? And in turn, what is religious becomes the anti-modern, the irrational, the unenlightened, the uncivilized, the savage even, right? And so it's, of course, there's like these, there's racial elements involved too, right? Europe was modern and secular and the rest of the world, right, was still backwards and religious and mystical, irrational, et cetera, right? So when we say religion, the category already has all of this baggage that like comes from just like, there's no concept of religion in Judaism. That word does not exist. Right. Wow. Right. I never realized that. Because it's just life. It's just life. It's like, what do you, what am I eating today? I can eat these foods or not. Is it, is it Monday or is it Shabbos? Is it like, that's just life. There's no Mm -hmm. religion like we're right. And so it's just like life. But this idea of religion then, right. Is almost like to say, okay, well, we could put all of those things like in this one area, right? And and call it religious or something. But do you think, do you think that like we have that point of view about Judaism because we are Jewish? Like, do you think that Christians are thinking the same thing about their religion? Like probably not in my head, but I really can't, it's no, hard to I'm, say. I think it's really just like being a like modern secular person. Yeah. Like meaning in the sense that we absorb, we grow up in, society and we absorb sort of it's so so dominant you know i mean if you look at next you'll notice now that like we talked about it you'll notice like in a movie or on the news or something like you'll notice somebody will say something about religion in general and it's like what is that like you know it's yeah. like because because if you ask like jews in i don't know 18th century france when all these french enlightenment philosophers are talking about how religion is irrational these jews are just like they're talking about their own little quarrel with the church. This has got nothing to do with us. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Um, but then once, once Jews became into the modern world and like 
you know, assimilated it into a certain degree, became a part of secular society, they naturally absorbed those ideas as well. Um, so that's why like some scholars, for example, have called like modern forms of Judaism, like especially like the reform movement and things like the Protestantization of Judaism, because it's like making it more like Protestantism, yeah. right? And you can even see that in like mm -hmm. synagogue architecture, right? And sort of the ways in which reform synagogues, perhaps like oftentimes they're the very architecture of them and looks more like a Protestant church um, mm -hmm. than, than a traditional synagogue, let's say. So, you know, just these changes have happened and they're like bound up with the world we live in. And so I'm always thinking about like, you know, the ways in which, yeah, the ways in which we relate to our own culture and our own, you know, uh, system of belief, like through these categories that maybe are not ours, you know, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, totally. It's almost like Judaism is, I know we always say like Judaism is a culture, but I really feel like it is, or after hearing you just talk, I, it just clicked for me. I was like, I feel like Judaism is a lifestyle and there's like different ways you can adapt it for yourself, but it's like, okay, how do I want to eat? How do I want to spend my weekends? Uh, what kind of rules do I want to follow? How do I want to dress? Like that to me feels more like, like an ethos, or like a way that you want to live right. versus like a religion. And it's like a real, and like you said, it's like about like real things you're doing. It's not just about your beliefs, mm -hmm. like Judaism in a, to a certain degree, it doesn't care about like what you believe, like in a sense, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not about like accepting this person as the Messiah or like having faith in this or whatever. Like, it's like, do you do Shabbat? Do you do that? Like, it's like, it's about literally mm -hmm. doing things, right? And whether you mm -hmm. believe in this or that or whatever, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that Judaism doesn't care if you, you know, do or don't believe in the Exodus or whatever, but I just mean, it's not like that isn't the ground of Judaism. The ground of Judaism is, like you said, like, what am I doing on the weekend? What am I eating at this meal? Right. And yeah, then there's like some beliefs associated, you know, whereas right. like other systems, you could say other like lifestyles, we could even say that don't really have any like physical things you can do or have very limited sort of like physical actions as like their basis and are in fact entirely about like just belief and faith. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So it's so it's like you're totally right. And I think that it's complicated because people, you know, sometimes people want to use the sort of Judaism as a culture argument to kind of like validate, you know, to be like, you know, Woody Allen and eating bagels and lox is like just as Jewish as like Shabbat or something. And I don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> the case, but I do think you're right that like, yeah, like it's just, it's a, li I, like you said, I think that's a great way of putting it. Like it's a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's like about, it's about the way you live your life, the way you structure your days, the things that you do. Mm -hmm. And there are beliefs and beliefs are a part of that, but they're just a part. Yeah, this is going to be right. a blanket statement that like we might take out, but we'll see. But I feel like <laughs> I feel like it is very acceptable within Judaism. I mean, reform Judaism, obviously, to say that like you don't necessarily believe in God, but you consider yourself Jewish as opposed totally. to another religion where if you don't, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian because that's the whole foundation of like Catholicism, especially, I feel like is, you know, thinking he's the Messiah. You're, you know what? You're totally right. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to pull up. Some, I just want to pull up something so that I pull say it, it right. But it's yeah. totally, it's totally connected. And I'm gonna, I'm about to go Orthodox for a second on you. I love it. Um, <laughs> go Orthodox, go off. And it's, wait. Yeah. So I was like, there was this, I saw this 
you know, because like you're saying, it's it's there are beliefs and there are, you know, there are certain things, certainly in Judaism, blah, blah, blah. But um, like you said, it's really not the the. It doesn't necessarily put you like outside of the Jewish world or the Jewish community or like. Right. And I was there was something that I saw that like this rabbi that I follow on Facebook, um, like posted like and he shared this tshuva, which is basically like a, a or like Orthodox rabbis. It literally means like a response to someone who's asking a question. So like somebody sends a question to like a rabbi, like, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? I, you know, I have a situation. I don't know. And the rabbi responds in what's called the tshuva. And so he sends me this tshuva, right? See this tshuva that he posted. It was so interesting because it was basically about, I don't remember the details of it, but it was something that was like, you know, we, it, in in ancient Israel, there were like groups of Jews who um, didn't believe in the um, like like the oral law, which we would say is like today is like in the Talmud, right, and things like that, right. And that's like a foundational part of rabbinic Judaism today, like and for the past two thousand years, basically, right. And so these people are ultimately kind of like fringe on the outside, right. And yet they were we know we have evidence that they were like doing services in the temple in Jerusalem, et cetera. And so this rabbi from like the 1950s was like writing this thing about like, who do you define as a heretic and who is like sort of outside of the boundaries of kind of like the Jewish whole. And his like proof was like, we see that these people who didn't even believe in the oral law were like doing things in the temple. So clearly there's like, they're not, they're not like excommunicated. Right. Um, and that belief is not like you just said, belief is not sort of the baseline or, or determining factor you could say. I love that. I also think Jews love to socialize and like going to services is a great opportunity to like catch up, schmooze, do some people watching. I feel like that probably existed back then if it exists today. 100%. I mean, what you're saying is like so true and I think is actually going back to like the conversation about organized religion, where like, you know, there's really organized religion gets this bad rap today because people, and, you know, notwithstanding my whole critique of the concept of religion, now I'm just going to use it, <laughs> whatever. But um, you, you know what I mean? So like that, you know, young people, progressive people, right? Like we want to be free. We want to do whatever we want, free love, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's very lonely. And like, there's kind of no acknowledgement of like, organized religion is real community and like in a really deep way, like what you're saying, it's sort of like every week seeing people like that is building real relationships. And so many people our age, like I think, including myself, you know, um, just don't really have that experience anymore. Like, you know, we certainly have friends that, you know, of course we have friends. That's not what I mean. I mean, like being a part of like this collective that's like bigger than you and that you could lean on and that you could ask for help. And like, you could like, you know, you're taken care of in a way, I think is one of the real, I know I was just talking to someone about like sort of white nationalism, honestly, today in the United States. It is casual today though. Like, yes, we talk about it literally every day. I'm fortunate that it is casual. I know, but you know, there's, there's a way in which, and not even necessarily white nationalism, but even just kind of like far right, let's say, or, or even just typical kind of like right wing, let's say all of the people who may still kind of find, think that the election is fraudulent or whatever. There's a, there's a tendency to like sort of 
dismiss the church, the role of the church as kind of like, I don't know, this kind of like ground of like Looney Tunes ideas and like they're like sort of this like uniformity and like they're submitting to like whatever the pastor says. But there's no real acknowledgement of the fact that like it's also like community. Like it's like these, like it's Mm -hmm. also like just these, it's a huge community. Like and it's real and people have their social bonds there and relationships and like for us to actually fight and counter these kinds of ideologies and these kinds of politics, like we have to really address that, I think, because mm-hmm. telling these people like, they're just crazy racists, you should leave the church. It's like, that's not gonna really work, right? Yeah. right? I was gonna, or we were wondering what you thought about people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and QAnon, like how do these people get elected to office and like, are these, people just a bunch of like looney tunes or like do they know what they're doing and they're just like looking for community i feel like it's almost like an us against them thing like that's really what those groups stand for and they certainly hate everyone certainly like i mean i definitely think that there's a politics of like us and them which is sort of um you know it's a very kind of like it goes back to carl schmidt who is a famous like Nazi legal theorist actually and he sort of theorized politics as like literally politics is just about you and the enemy like that's the only division that matters that's the only division that matters it's and and it's definitely there's definitely this idea of like this politics of us versus them there's this politics of victimhood like you know they really like of being a victim and and feeling like you know one is being left behind this kind of paranoid victimhood too right there's a way it's like this imagined victimhood in the future right like the illegals quote unquote are like incoming right they're like on their way right we're always like one step away from the like invasion right or something so there is this kind of imagined victimhood um which is like interesting to think about like where that might come from you know and like how do they get elected well you know I don't want to belittle Do it. getting into Congress or anything, but like, <laughs> it's not the Senate. Like, I mean, you know, getting elected to, uh, like, don't get me wrong. I think there are like some crazy senators, which mm-hmm. we can talk about, but like, but you know, I getting think. elected to like a house seat is not the craziest of, like, there's a lot of, I think, strange political views held by some people in the house. Um, because, you know, so many of them represent maybe like, just small it's a smaller number of it's a smaller pool and so local in that sense like it's really easy for like local issues localized ideas okay so marjorie and QAnon. well so there's two (laughs) things to really talk about there one is conspiracy theories you know and conspiracy it's really i think important for like us to acknowledge that conspiracy theories people turn to conspiracy theories to explain things that they can't explain otherwise um right and that it's not just this like silly little fantasy game they're playing but it's like you know they a lot of people power is so complicated and obscure and like understanding like wall street and washington dc and like the state department and the department of defense like there's just it's there's so the bureaucracy of it all that to make sense of it right and 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 when and especially if you're suffering or you feel that you're suffering, you imagine that you're suffering or you fear that you're going to lose your job and you won't be able to thrive for your family. Like it's very comforting to have a kind of general theory 
that will explain it all, number one. And number two, will tell you who the enemy is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very safe and comforting thing. So like, I think that it's like, it's a, it's a misguided approach to be like, we just have to prove it wrong. Like we just have to prove that QAnon is false because it's not about like whether or not it's, they'll find another something to believe in, right? It's like the fact that conspiracy theories are comforting to people because they give this kind of, for people, especially with kind of like paranoid, you know, tendency, let's say, to, they give them a way to explain and understand a really, really complex world. But how and why are Jews always the scapegoat in every conspiracy? Like, do you know how that started? Or is there like a specific point in time where we just became the ones, <laughs> the chosen ones? It was really interesting. I mean, you know, <laughs> we can we can go back, we could go back way far. I mean, we could, we could talk about, okay, we can go like really far back to kind of early Christianity, but even, and talk about the ways in which, uh, the, the fear, uh, the Jewish influence on the church, um, was sort of foundational to a lot of early Christian theology because of course, Judaism, I mean, Christianity came out of Judaism. So this fundamental question is going to be, well, how are we different from Jews? I mean, maybe we're Jews, like, right. I mean, <laughs> right. Like, so it's like, no, it's like, right. It's going to be this, like this, this panicked differentiation, this need to kind of distinguish oneself and say, no, like this is where Judaism ends and this is where Christianity begins. And what that means is that you're kind of always on the lookout for this kind of creeping Jewish influence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in many, and what happened in, in, from the early church and onward really is that oftentimes there'd be these polemics and arguments between Christians about who was actually more Jewish. And it had, and in fact, Jews were not even a part of it. Like Jews were not even, it wasn't really about Jews. It was about Christians being like, you're too, you're being too Jewish, you know? And, and then being like, no, you're being too Jewish, you know? Because maybe they were, you know, saying, I don't know, who knows? They had, depending on what their theological argument was, it was too close to the Jewish interpretation maybe or something, right? And even Martin Luther, like, you know, the Reformation, like, and, and uh, he, in, in like the 1500s Germany, like, when he was attacking the Catholic Church, he was saying the Catholic Church is too Jewish. They've gotten so obsessed with all these rituals, all this physical, materialistic things, they've just become Jews. Like, that's why I need to create a whole new re- form of Christianity that became Protestant, you know, Lutheran right. Christianity. Um, so, so, the Jew and Judaism has like enormous amount of value already in kind of European Christian culture as a way of naming the enemy who's really like not a Jew, but like you're using that right between Mm -hmm. Christians, I should say. So we can go way back to talk about that and we could like, right. But then more in terms of like kind of the modern moment, you know, we really kind of see uh, conspiracy theories being related to or attached to Jews certainly like basically at the end of the 19th century um, and the rise of sort of anti-Semitism proper, um, which is to say, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-Semitic movements themselves, they called themselves anti-Semitic. This word didn't exist before the late 19th century. Um, and so with these movements and then with other kind of developments, especially with sort of the for, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which I'm sure you've heard about, um, that the, the the marriage between sort of this racial obsession with Jews and a kind of um, 
conspiracy theory of international subversion, right, became really glued together. And that makes sense because the Jews were a people that were trans, fundamentally transnational, right? Like they, they were not a people located in one location with the country and government of their own. And so this idea that, you know, let's say I'm in Paris and I could have a cousin in Berlin, that's really scary to, Fre- to non-Jewish French people, for example. I'm just like speaking proverbially mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that means like I may not, number one, like I may be disloyal and I may be like, you know, colluding with my cousin in Berlin to like get the Germans to invade France or whatever. Or I may be lending money to French people and like, you know, ultimately taking those profits and sending them to my family in London or to my sister in Vienna, right? So the idea that Jews were international, right, makes them kind of very easy to associate with this international threat. And that's what we see today, you know, for example, in these kinds of threats of, uh, you know, George Soros is funding Black Lives Matter, right? It's sort of things it's like this idea that there's some foreign Jew who is funding these subversive movements that are tearing the nation apart, right? And so that's kind of part of why these things get married together. And then the third thing is that just at a certain point, it kind of became so, there was just so much iconography, imagery, language around this, around Jews and conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism that it almost just became like almost a part of Western culture. Like I think that Marjorie Green, like when she says like, you know, the Wa- the Rothschilds or something, I like don't even think she's really thinking like, yeah, like a Jewish banking family. Like it's just like sort of what's in the toolbox. Yeah. It's just like, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Like it's just become so, such a normal, um, these scholars in London that are awesome, like David Feldman, Brendan McGeever, they have this idea of anti-Semitism as a reservoir of like imagery and tropes and symbols that you could, different people can sort of draw on, right? And so it's it's a way of sort of thinking about less about sort of these individual intentions and more trying to address, you know, just how these images circulate in, in these almost like really simple ways. Like, it's just almost like all of a sudden, it's like these these images come about and it's like, how is that so easy? Oh, it must be like so in firmly entrenched in this mm-hmm. kind of, cultural toolbox that we can all draw on. The one thing I'll say about MTG, if she'll allow me to call her that, (laughs) um, is that, you know, there's also change. Like there's also differences in time, meaning like we aren't living in 1890 in Germany or France. And we certainly aren't living, I don't think in 1933 Germany. And what I mean by that is like, it's important for us to, which is not to say that I'm not saying that like, you know, things are getting better or things are getting worse. I just mean it's different. And if we really Mm want to like, understand and address anti-Semitism today, we have to really understand what it is today, right? And and we can't necessarily treat it. There's a big tendency and a big investment in treating anti-Semitism as just this timeless hatred. It's just always existed or always exists. And it's just we can't can't do anything about it or like, you know, or or except just shutting the people, shutting the anti-Semites out, you know? Um and Certainly, we can find continuities across time and place, across thousands of years, even between in, in terms of anti-Jewish ideologies, anti-Jewish violence policies. But there's also, you know, all, so many changes and so much contextual specificity for each moment. Um, you know, why anti-Semitism was so useful and attractive to 
certain groups of people in late 19th century France and Germany is very different to why conspiracy theories are attracted to white Americans today. Like it's just right. And, and they're definitely, they're drawing on the same tropes and maybe the same imagery, but it doesn't necessarily serve us to kind of just treat these as all the same simply because the image is the same, right? Like simply mm-hmm. because we see a guy with a, you know, big curved nose and we could say, yes. oh yeah, there was also a guy with a big curved nose in 1897 in a French newspaper. Okay. But okay. <laughs> the sky was blue then too. And the sky is blue today also. And like right. things have happened. Yeah. Right. So, so one of the differences to really consider, you know, is the fact that the anti-Semites from the late 19th century, they had very clear and specific policy goals related to Jews. MTG has not articulated any kind of anti-Jewish policy whatsoever, right? She's not suggesting that, you know, we crack down on Jewish immigration. She's not, right, anything like that. Um, And so the fact that it's actually anti-Semitism is only really living in terms of the discursive register, I would call it, like sort of the register of images, of language, of symbols, and doesn't necessarily have backing and policy, right, is really important for us to, to, to recognize, and then it will change the way that we address it. So for example, like, what that means is that there really isn't like top-down state-sponsored anti-Jewish racism. We don't have that in this country. We just don't, mm-hmm. right? We have, we have like systemic anti-Black racism, absolutely. I think we also have like systemic Islamophobia in terms of like the Muslim ban, right? But there was never any moment in the past, and certainly in the past administration, right, where there was like articulated a state-driven policy against Jews. So what that means is that the violence that does occur is mostly this kind of populist explosions of violence, these extrajudicial individuals who are radicalized maybe on the internet, right? And they and they take matters in their own hands and they unfortunately, horribly, atrociously, like may go, you know, commit violence against Jews. So that's just important for us to recognize, like, because mm-hmm. like, because then, because that's going to change how we fight it, right? And it's not really, it's not, it's really important for us to see how racisms, different racisms work together because they absolutely do, as I mentioned, in terms of like these ideas of Soros funding Black Lives Matter, right? Um, but it's also important for us to recognize how they aren't the same, right? And like, and, and you know, the police force, for example, is not systemically pursuing Jewish people, right? And, and the ways in which this, ex- you know, people say there's been a rise in anti-Semitism since the Trump election. Well, what does that yeah. mean? Like, like, you know, like a rise in the images, a rise in laws, certainly not. Right. 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 So like, again, I'm not absolving it. I'm not saying everything's okay at all. But what you're saying saying is it could be worse. It could be worse. (laughs) And I do think that I do think that as a scholar, like a historical scholar, you know, sometimes I see the ways in which young Jews in the United States are responding to some of the language going around. And I'm just like, Oh, you guys have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. If you think this is scary. It's funny you mention that because it sometimes makes me a little uncomfortable when we see like, for example, these like infographics going around on Instagram in the wake of like, of Black Lives Matter and all the protests this summer and everything. There were a lot of infographics about anti-Semitism as well. And I, I, it made me a little uncomfortable because I was like, I know that we are persecuted and that there's a lot of anti-Semitism and that we are misunderstood and there are like anti-Semitic crimes, but it's so different than 
being black and having to deal with racism or even now being Asian and having to deal with racism and all these like terrible things are happening in Oakland. Like it's just, I feel like it's very nuanced and it's hard to relay that through an infographic. Absolutely. And I, you know, I actually, I wrote a piece in June for Jewish Currents that was actually like about this. It was called Against Analogy and it was kind of Mm -hmm. pushing against this idea there was a lot of discourse in the early days of kind of the summer uprisings right after the murder of George Floyd. There was kind of a lot of this like in, in Jewish communal institutions and, and, and Jewish thought leaders like around like, you know, we've seen this before. And like, why, why should you care about uh, uh, police brutality? Because, you know, we have suffered in our history from racist regimes and administrations, right, etc. And I kind of was putting forth of this argument that that actually prevents us from really understanding anti-blackness in this country because, you know, we have suffered and our history is incredibly important and we should learn from it. Absolutely. But, but when you, that's the template. So then you're not really actually understanding what's different about this situation. And also I would say in terms of like Jewish communal institutions, like your, perhaps your implication in it. Perhaps you're, mm-hmm. you know, it's really easy to be this kind of like, we're victims, you're victims, let's hold hands, right? Yeah. But when you start, but when you start like thinking about, hmm, like actually you're a white person in this country, right? And like, what are the ways in which maybe we are implicated in, in this violence, right? I think is in ways, and I wasn't saying it to scold. I was actually just saying strategically, like, I actually think that's more productive. You know, like when mm-hmm. I talked, spoke to my parents, for example, about police brutality or anti-blackness, I wasn't like, you know, oh, you know, like the pogroms, like this is kind of like that. That wasn't my approach. Like I just was like starting with the history of the United States and slavery and mass incarceration. Right. And and then and they get it. And right. And then they can think about their like I said, like them as white people in this country. Right. Without having to be like, but is it is our was ours worse? Is this worse? Like all of these mm-hmm. like measurements, right? And you know, the other thing is, I think, to speak to the infographic kind of situation, is that there's a way in which being a victim of racism has unfortunately a certain kind of cultural currency in like liberal culture, right? And I think that many young Jews, like it's it would in order for them to feel a part of the progressive anti-racist coalition, there was this idea and there is this idea that they have to be kind of victims of racism too. Right. Like, and so like this idea Mm -hmm. that we are victims of anti-Semitism and like, we can make also make these infographics and we can also kind of organize Mm -hmm. around it. Right. Is a way to sort of ensure that we will be a part of the anti-racist coalition. And I, and I, I think that that's, a misguided approach. I think there's a lot of kind of like narcissism there. And it's just like, it's not about Jews right now. Um, mm-hmm. And, or I should say, it's not about white Jews right now. That's where I think, you know, I think a lot of that just, it, it comes from that kind of culture. I, I see it, I hear it, you know, and this idea of the inherited, the discourse of like inherited trauma. I mean, you just see, like you see in the language around, you know, protests with the camps at the border, let's say, right. It's like, again, like I mentioned, like we've seen this before. Like, have you? I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, and that has to do everything also, you know, again, with like Holocaust culture and the way in which Holocaust memory is kind of like just this civic religion, American religion. Yeah. And right. Like, and that, and that always going back to the Holocaust. And that's like the barometer. It's like how, right. And 
So even this, we've seen this before. It's like, okay, so even if I accept that you've seen this before, fine. What if you did it? Like, so what then? You would not be in this fight? Like, you know, what, right. is, like, what does it matter that, right? Now, of course it matters because they would say, I think it's strategic. We're trying to mobilize people. We're trying to mobilize Jews. And like, this is one way to mobilize them. Okay, fair enough, right? But I just mean as like a thought experiment to kind of like think about why do we always have this need to like go back to the Holocaust? And I really don't think it is because people have, like Americans have some like deep love for like Jewish history or Jewish people. I just think it's because the Holocaust has become has been like separated from Jews basically and just has become a part of like American culture. And, you know, especially in the past 30 years and sort of the explosion of Holocaust cinema and then like mandating of Holocaust education in, in pub, American public schools, right? It's just kind of become a part of American culture in a way that creates kind of weird and problematic sometimes and sticky situations. I haven't felt this educated since I cannot even tell you when, truly. Same. Oh, well, I got my teacher. Do you, I have a fantasy that anti-Semitism will go away one day. I also have a fantasy that racism will go away against Black people and other people. Am I out of my mind or do you think that's possible? Um, <laughs> I think, no pressure you know, to answer this correctly. I don't think JC yes. shares this school of thought. I though. think it's absolutely possible. I think it's, a, first of all, I think it's a necessary horizon. Like, we have to believe that it's possible. It's like the horizon that we're working towards. It's a really good question because there's sort of like this, like, what do you do with the past? Like, even if we reach a point, let's say, where somehow we've like dismantled, right, all of the kind of systemic things, right, systemic racisms, we're not going to like, just like wipe everyone's memory. Exactly. Right? Like, so like, what do you do? Like, right? So like, what do you do with that? What is the legacy of the past then? And like, how do you deal with wrongs from the past? I mean, this is a big debate around like, you know, when people bring up the issue of reparations in this country, right? And there's this whole kind of logic of like, just move on. And part of that logic is this kind of fantasy of achieving some sort of like post-racial moment, right? But that's not really repairing the past. That's like, like that's not really justice, right? We can, you know, arrive at a, a place where different forms of racism are eradicated, different, you know, including anti-Semitism. And, you know, and I would say along with that, different forms of sexism and transphobia, et cetera, are eradicated. Um, but I think that it can't be done surgically. And what I mean is that we often, t- like, we have this approach where it's like, you know, we have organizations, big nonprofits that, you know, are fighting anti-Semitism. Well, it's like, you're just like on a treadmill then because you're not really dealing with these big systemic structural issues. And I think that without massive social transformation in general, it, it won't be possible. So for example, when we like, just to go back to the thing of conspiracy theories, right? If, if we don't find a way to make power less inscrutable, like, and less complicated and less alien distance from people, where you have wealthy elites trading stocks with the COVID information. I mean, how, of course, of course you would believe in conspiracy theory. Like <laughs> conspiracies happen. We know that like Purdue and Leffler are like making money off of like knowing that COVID happened. Right. And like, mm-hmm. it's just like, yeah, like there are conspiracies. So like, that's why people believe in conspiracy theory. Right. So like, if we don't, right. Like if we don't deal with the, those big issues, it's kind of like a weed that will just like keep coming back, you know? And like, that's why you have to like, I mean, and also like on a smaller scale, I don't think that like microaggressions are going to halt anytime soon, especially when people are so 
I don't want to say like ignorant, but yeah, ignorant, especially if you live in like a small town in Bumfuck, Arkansas, and you've never met a Jew in your life before. And the only thing you know about Jews is from your mom, whose mom was, you know, anti-Semitic. It's just, it's not going to just go away one, two, three, even if it's on like such a small scale, um, it will probably still be around. Absolutely. And that's like, I think that's really an important, it's just an important like shift in your assumption because basically like right now, I feel like the assumption really on the right and the left is that anti-Semitism should be nowhere in sight. And if it is, then we have to like really quickly, like get rid of it. Right. And it's really this like intensely, you know, this like eradicating anti-Semitism sort of thing. It's like this whack-a-mole where every anti-Semitism is like, there's whack it, get it out. And it doesn't <laughs> deal with like the the fact that under the whack-a-mole machine, there's a garden. Like, right? That, like, <laughs> keeps, right. And so exactly like having the assumption, I think it's really important to have the assumption, like you just said that like, yeah, there's anti-Semitism in the world. We're, we're 2000 years running people. Like, you know, it's not going to, this isn't just going to be like, that should be our starting assumption because then it's like takes away all of the, this like moral outrage and shock of like, I can't believe, like, I can't believe this person said like Marjorie Green, right? I can't believe she said Rothschild. Why wouldn't she say Rothschild? Like that's her frame of reference. Like that. Right. Like that would, that should be the assumption. We've had 150 years of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in Western culture around the Rothschild banking family. Like literally, why would she not talk about the rock job. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> so like once you begin from that assumption, I think it's like it's relaxing in a way. I don't know if that makes you're not so scandalized by every mm-hmm. little thing, every little image, every little word that happens. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. That makes me feel better also. And um, Yeah. I feel like it makes me feel better too. I feel like it's a good mindset to approach all of this with because it can be yeah. very overwhelming and disheartening at the same time. Tell us about protocols. Oh my God. Protocols. I started protocols as sort of a space. One of the reasons was it was a space to really have kind of like these more critical and complex conversations, right? That are going to be, that aren't just built based in this kind of moral outrage and like, you know, the infographic style and like, Mm -hmm. and just would be a little more critical and complex. And I think that just in the name of the journal, protocols, like we're already trying to play with that. Like we're obviously playing with this idea of the protocols of the elders of Zion. And, you know, will definitely people come into contact with the journal, especially I think it's a generational thing who are just like, I just can't shake it. I just can't shake when I hear that word, you know? And that's exactly <laughs> why we did it is because we're trying to sort of deflate some of this like moral grandstanding around this and like, you know, trying to be a little irreverent and even chill out and like comical even with it, right? And that we don't have to, we can have conversations amongst ourselves as Jews and be irreverent and be silly and, and, you know, ask weird and controversial questions. And we don't have to worry about giving ammunition to the anti-Semites or something. You know what I mean? I just want to say like a little plug for that and to check it out. There's a lot of interesting politics and art in it. And you could go to it at www.prtcls.com. You're doing such important work and you're so fucking cool and smart. And just like, I'm so impressed by you. I feel like protocols is part of this like new like emergence within Judaism that I almost like, I want to call like Jonah Hill Judaism. It's like cool and accessible and it appeals to a lot of different people. And it's not like so like intimidating and complex that it's like, you can't be part of this, but it's also not like corny and lame where you're like, I don't want to be part of this. And I'm very into that. 
thank you. Yes. I just want to endorse that statement. Jonah Hill Judaism. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that. Did you make that up before this conversation or was that like a... It's something I think about a lot. Okay. Cool. But I, it is an original thought. And Jonah Hill's probably like, please take my name out, out of your mouth, but... <laughs> <laughs> Would love to have him on the podcast. Um, okay, our last question. What is your go-to bagel order? Mm. (laughs) um my go-to bagel order is what's funny because i i okay it's gonna be a little complicated answer but (laughs) i (laughs) you know because the thing is with quarantine or with 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 pandemic lifestyle um my like bagel shops which i'll give shout outs to maury's bagel yes that's my bagel shop and and bell's bagels in highland park Oh, I want to try that place. So, okay. So my bagel order is like always an everything bagel. If I'm going to Maury's and it's the weekend, I will be getting guava rugelach. So anyway, since, okay. So I do the lox cream cheese normally only because if you get that lox on the bagel, that's like a $10 plus. Okay. Yeah. It just shoots your order into another round. <laughs> like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, wait, I thought I was like just getting a bagel and now it's like $15. <laughs> so I typically get like the lox cream cheese and then, or, or I get it with plain cream cheese and I like have lox at home that I like then make my own kind of like sandwich with. And then with red onions sliced. Very Love thin a thin onion. But yeah, that's, uh, that yeah. is my, that's my ideal sandwich. Not it's not that exciting. It's pretty good. But typical. it's a great order. That's my exact yeah. go-to as well. So I approve. Yeah, I love that. Shout out so. to Morris. Fostered by Morris. Thanks for being here, Ben. Yeah, thank, thank you, guys. You. This is so thank fun. you so much. Thanks for joining us, Ben. You can follow him and Protocols on Instagram at P-R-T-C-L-S. That's Protocols Without Any Vowels. And on Twitter at underscore P-R-T-C-L-S. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen for free on Spotify. And don't forget to rate and review us. If you want to support our show financially, we'll love you forever. You can go to anchor.fm slash pray for us slash support. Even $1 makes a difference. We're so appreciative. Follow us on Insta at pray for us pod if you're not already. And if you feel like it, send us a note at pray for us pod at gmail.com. Shabbat shalom. This podcast has been mastered and mixed by the one and only Josh Fisher. Yay, Josh. We love you, Josh. <laughs>